0: life, Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, and that I that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You will have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give up on the will of my adversaries, for the false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Um, the second reading comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 to 11, and it can be found on page 788 of the, of the Pew Bibles. do not judge so that you may not be judged for with the judgment you make you will be judged and the measure you give will be measure, will be the measure you get why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye or how can you say to your neighbor let me take that speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye you hypocrite First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs and do not throw pearls before the swine or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds and for everyone who knocks the door will be opened is there anyone among you who if your child asks for bread will give a stone or if the child asks for a fish will give him a snake if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him
1: Well, throughout January in our sermon series, we are listening to the beautiful promises of Jesus. It's, I think, one of the most notable things about the God of the Bible uh, in general, and Jesus specifically, that he makes promises to us. Great, big, sweeping, comforting, confidence-generating, courage fueling promises. And so often the promises of God are wonderfully and outrageously Unconditional. I say that because, um, of course, our world is filled with promises. In fact, human life could not go on without promises. But often the promises that we make to one another are transactional. If you will do this, then I will do that. That's the fundamental form of a transactional promise. It's it's promises, I will do something, but but a transaction. If you hand over to me that loaf of bread, I will hand over to you three dollars. And you can tell a transactional promise by the if that starts it. And what's more, I'd say that in the economic sphere of life, transactions are uh, pretty much always the right thing. Uh, Anything other than a transaction is uh, theft, actually. The catastrophic thing, though, is to allow the pattern of transactional promises in the economic sphere to become the pattern of all your other promises, especially promises in the relational sphere. Perhaps the most celebrated alternative to transactional promises are the covenant promises of marriage. You see, what's most obvious about the marriage vows is the complete lack of any if involved. On the contrary, the territory is staked out specifically to exclude any if. To love and to cherish, to have and to hold. Those are the promises, deep, big, intimate promises. And the territory is clear as long as we both shall live while we both draw breath. And that's for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, especially it's in sickness and in health, when the times are good or bad or hard or easy. These are the opposite of transaction promises, aren't they? They're like God's promises, covenant promises. In fact, I think it would not be an exaggeration to say that the gospel comes to us in promissory form. God launches his creation with a promise, the promise of blessing. And that promised blessing is undeterred even by the entrance of the misery of sin. And likewise, God launches his new creation in Jesus Christ with the same promise of blessing, except now magnified into a new heavens and a new earth. And there are two key features to promises, especially to covenant promises, that are especially particularly important. You see, a promise always calls for trust. And therefore, a promise trusted always establishes and deepens a relationship. That's how promises work, isn't it? A promise always calls for trust, and a promise trusted establishes and then deepens a relationship. Promises like this, covenant promises, are profoundly personal. That's why it makes sense that the gospel has the fundamental pattern of a promise because God is in himself so gloriously personal, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think that's seen with particular and powerful clarity in the promise that we look at tonight. God's promise to hear and answer our prayers. We heard it in the reading from Matthew's Gospel towards the end of what we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount, that wonderful promise that how much more will our Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus often teaches his disciples about prayer. Uh, prayer is like the oxygen of the soul Uh, it's the the, the essence of of what it is to live with God and so it's perfectly sensible that Jesus would tell and teach his disciples about prayer almost always in the form of a story because that's how good teachers always teach and the stories teach by painting the picture of a character who we're to be like they're they're similar to us often in their dogged sheer persistence a a friend who goes to a neighbour at midnight a, a widow who keeps beating on the door of a judge And Jesus says we're to be persistent like them. In Matthew 7, Jesus again encourages us to pray. This time, not so much about persistence, although that's there, as we'll see. But assuring us that we'll be heard and answered. Ask, verse 7, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he goes on to illustrate why we can have this confidence that when we ask, we receive, and when we search, we find, and when we knock, the door's opened. But this time, it's not a simile or a, or a metaphor, it's not a story about someone we're like. Rather, I think we hit bedrock reality here. It's because the very structure of prayer is that of a child addressing her or his father. That's not an analogy. That's reality. That's why back in chapter 6 of Matthew, in the previous chapter, when Jesus uh, is asked to teach us how to pray, he says that the right way to pray is to say, our Father. Our Father. And so we're going to feed on this promise that God, our Heavenly Father, will answer when his children pray. Uh, We're going to look at it under three headings. Firstly, uh, what it means that the one who prays is a child. Then, second, what it means that the one to whom we pray is our father and then thirdly how we can develop into this habit of prayer so first then what it means that the one who prays is always and only a child when Jesus wants to teach us about why we can have confidence that our prayers will be answered he goes to our most profound relationship it's a relationship that every person has who has ever lived that of a child to a parent verse 9 Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? I've been reading a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Uh, It's a terrific book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. You can write that down. Uh, It will be a very fine thing for you to do that. I would well, well recommend it as January reading A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And in it, he reflects on what children are like, and the word he comes up with to capture it all is messy. Above everything, children are messy. Not just physically messy, although that's of course true. I was with some parents this afternoon that were trying to teach their child to uh, uh, toilet train their child, and we're just sitting there, and the child was over in a chair just over there, and that's, that's... this stream of liquid just started pouring out of the, t- the chair. It's like, yep, children are messy. But not just physically messy, that's just at the surface. No, children are gloriously relationally messy. Children just blurt. They say what comes to their minds. They're not particularly filtered about it. Children, you might say, are gloriously self-engaged. They know what they like, they know what they want, and they really don't mind telling anyone who cares to listen about it, especially their parents. Miller points out a quote that children never get frozen by their selfishness. They just come out as they are, totally self-absorbed. They seldom get it right. And I think it's a really important observation because Jesus says, you're a little child in your prayers. Pray like a little child because that's what you are to your father. And that impacts, I think, in a couple of ways, at least the first is what we ask for. And um, What is it that kids ask for? And the answer is everything. Everything and anything they see something advertised they want it it doesn't matter how big or small it is Do you know why they put all the lollies and chocolates at the checkout point of the supermarket to get your kids that's what it's all about and they see it and they say can i have they just ask they just want it they say for it jesus examples here are spectacularly mundane aren't they bread and fish just the ordinary stuff of life But second how do children ask they ask repeatedly over and over and over and over and and i could go on a long time over again are we there yet are we there yet are we there can we be there yet are we there are we there yet over again children don't find not receiving what they've asked for as a disincentive to ask the next time don't you think that's just awesome. Children don't find not receiving what they've asked for to be a disincentive to ask the next time. They just keep asking. They ask without guile. They say what's on their minds as it's on their minds. They don't filter for what's appropriate and noble and theologically and correct and ethically sanctioned. They just ask a lot. Now, of course, there's more to praying than asking. There's praising God, bringing to your mind and your words a statement of just how utterly awesome and wonderful God is. There's thanking God, thanking him for the blessings that he pours into your life, and especially being most thankful for the biggest blessings, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of glory, the adoption that we have as his children. There's, There's praise and there's thanksgiving. There's confession, one of the most fundamental forms of prayer, as we own the particular ways in which we've turned in our hearts away from God and then instead very deliberately and decisive turn our hearts back to God so yes of course there is more to praying than asking but there's not less to praying than asking and so just as this text begins to kind of roll around in our minds allow the reality that prayer is a child asking a heavenly father to sink a little bit into your soul, reflect a moment on your own prayer life? How much just simple, childlike asking is there? Or is there just a little too much self-censorship going on? And perhaps even cynicism. One of the things that Paul Miller points out is that the opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. And I want to suggest that the the danger, the kind of quicksand that can suck you into a cynical spirit is especially present in our culture now, which is increasingly cynical. Cynicism is the new normal. One way to characterize cynicism is that it is the scar tissue of the soul building up from accumulated disappointment. Think about that for a moment. When you're disappointed, when you've had hopes that are disappointed, then it makes a, it makes a cut on you. And, and it heals over, but it leaves a scar. And, and Miller says that cynicism is the scar tissue of the soul just built up from accumulated disappointment that hasn't really healed. As life goes on, the list of hopes, dash, and expectations unfulfilled grows. And it it can, unless you do something about it, it can become more and more difficult to avoid cynicism. I I, I think that our culture is deeply cynical. Deeply cynical. You see it in the way that people are constantly attributing the worst of motives to others. Uh, Apparently they know precisely how selfish and greedy and disinterested and power-hungry those other people are. But of course they don't know any such thing except that when you're cynical, you know that everyone's like that. And being cynical has a payoff. That's why, that's why people do it, actually. It's not, it's, not, it's not a dumb move. I mean, I think ultimately it's a terribly life-destroying move, but it, it's got a payoff. It's gloriously self-protective. The cynical person withdraws hopefulness and inoculates themselves against further disappointment. So it's got a payoff, cynicism. And at the same time, there's a certain satisfaction to it, I think. That smugness of knowing that you get how the real world works. You're not going to be fooled. You're not going to be hoodwinked anymore. You get it. And yet at the same time, cynicism exacts a terrible toll. The cynic is always observing and always critiquing always adopting the outside position. But from that position finds it incredibly difficult to actually engage, to love, to hope. One person put it like this. She said, cynicism protects you from crushing disappointment, but it paralyzes you from doing anything at all. And of course, there's nothing that will be more corrosive to prayer than cynicism towards God, right? There's nothing that will be more corrosive to prayer than cynicism towards God. Why would you? What is it that can keep us from abandoning that childlike trust in a heavenly father, to becoming increasingly detached and safe and ultimately cynical along with our culture so much of our culture is just angry enraged or dulled it's only that you know that the one you pray to is your father and so point to you see how jesus puts it in verse 11 If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? What gives rise to cynicism is a kind of naive optimism. That's where it comes from, actually. A naive optimism that takes the world to be an uninterruptedly good place. That's where cynicism starts. When you think the world is just a sort of a Pollyanna, everything works out kind of world, and actually that's not as silly as it sounds because... There are so many good things about our world. In many, many ways, human ingenuity has made bad things good and good things better so that it's actually quite easy to fall into a kind of naive optimism. You've got a medical problem, what do you do? You go to the doctor and the doctor just fixes it up because that's what they do and there's not much that can't be fixed these days. You're unhappy, well, you take a course, read a book, get back to normal, normal. except our world is messed up. And when the brokenness of life intrudes, this kind of naive optimism, hollow, puffed up, shallow, unsustainable, it just pops, doesn't it? Don't you think that that's a large part of what's happening around in the culture at the moment? A kind of broken, crushed, naive optimism collapsed in the face that this is a broken world. It turns out that many princes are not that charming after all. It turns out that there are lots of things that when they get broken can be neither fixed nor replaced. And what stops you from sliding into cynicism at that moment, when all the naivety of one's optimism just comes sort of crashing down around? is to know that there is a God in heaven you can trust rather than the supposed inherent goodness of people and systems. You can put this another way, uh, which is to say that what Jesus teaches us about prayer makes no sense except on family terms. What Jesus teaches us about prayer makes no sense except on family terms. To relentlessly come to God with all our desires, To be optimistic, but not naively optimistic, because at the same time you come to him in trust that he is the Lord of this world. It's only a person who knows that they're a child of the Heavenly Father that can do that. Only a child has the audacity to continually tug on a parent's sleeve. You know that moment? Constantly tugging. And yet at the same time, does that with a trust, not expecting to understand everything that the parent does. You see how this trust works? In the example that Jesus gives, um, he, he says that even we know not to give a stone when a child asks for bread or a snake when they ask for fish. So think about it. W- what's the implication? If your child asks for a snake, what are you going to do? Give him a snake? No. No. Of course not fathers don't do that children know that adults do weird stuff they do weird stuff that the kids don't understand and are not especially surprised when they do parenting is filled with moments of what you might call redirecting when the kid wants one thing can i have those 12 mars bars please hey look at this really terrific um cauliflower over here i mean it's really excellent very tasty. Parents do all sorts of redirecting when the kid wants one thing but instead the father knows that something else will be better for them and so gently redirects. Do you see how it's only this trust in a good heavenly father that will enable you to handle ungiven prayer? It is one of the great challenges in the spiritual life, a kind of Terrible temptation of cynicism on steroids when you pray for years and years for the same thing. You're like that little child and you're tugging on the father's sleeve. And it's only knowing that you have a father in heaven that means you'll pray at all. After all, if there's no God or if he's powerless, then there's no real point in praying. But at the same time, it's only if you know that he's good that you'll trust him in the answer that he gives to you. Uh, One way author Tim Keller puts it, Uh, is both, I think, very helpful and very challenging. Listen to this. I've I've wrestled with this uh, a lot in the years since I heard him say this. Uh, Keller says that your father gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows and were as wise and as good as him. Okay, think about that for a moment. Your father gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows and were as wise and as good as him. Of course, you don't know everything he knows and you're not even close to being as wise or as good as he is. But you do know one thing. You know that he is good. He loves you. He proved his love for you in that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He came to you way ahead of you ever being even thinking of him. He came to you. Christ died for you. Not not when you're good, not when you're impressive, not when you're spiritually worthy. It was when you're a sinner that Christ died for you. And so the one sure foundation for all of your life is that God loves you, that he's good, that you can trust him. And therefore you trust that what he does give to you in answer to your prayers, is his good purpose for you. You see, when our prayers are not given to us in quite the way that we ask, I'd suggest that there's blessing hidden there. Because what happens next for you, what, what you do next, tells you quite a lot about who you think God is. See, the first port of call for ungiven prayer is that you're irked. You you, you say to yourself, I asked and I didn't get it. And you get irked. But prayer doesn't work that way. That's a kind of a genie view of prayer. Imagine if you gave Aladdin's lamp to an eight-year-old. Do you know what eight-year-olds wish for? Really dangerous moment if an eight-year-old had a genie to make three wishes to. I've got a teacher at school. You just get out of there. Eight-year-old with a genie, make for the hills because disaster is coming. And if you're a Christian and God is not giving it to you, know that, uh, that God is your Father who only gives you good gifts. It, it will stretch your faith to breaking point. This, this issue, I mean, there's not, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It will stretch your faith to breaking point. It maybe even will get you within eyeshot of Jesus as his faith was stretched to breaking point as he went to the cross. But that is the reality. You go to a father, not to a Jenny. You have to learn to trust your father even when he says no or wait. But then this process of ungiven prayer kind of solidifies. As you find the answers to your prayers more and more have no and wait in them, you move from being irked to being angry. And what grows in us can be a kind of hard brittleness and inability to handle the real pressures and suffering of life. That naive optimism just keeps sort of poking its ugly head up. And eventually that anger turns to self anger You search around for a reason for why God doesn't answer your prayers and you find one. Why would he? Why would he give someone like me what I ask for? After what I've done, after the choices that I'd made after my history, with the thoughts and intentions and motives and heart that I have, no wonder he doesn't answer my prayers the way I want. Have you reached that dark point? Do you know know that kind of moment? Do you see what's happening there? Now you're coming to God as an employee, actually, not as a child. And your employer rates you on your performance and decides how much bonus he's going to give you at the end of the year. But notice what Jesus says here in the, in the, the passage itself. He says, if, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, that, that's not a euphemism that he's making there, right? He's not saying you that are slightly sort of a bit off at times. No, no He knows exactly what we are. He knows exactly who we are. He's not surprised anything about us he knows us and still he says come to the father and that's a that's a terrible descent in the spiritual life to find that you're not coming to the father because actually you think he's your boss and that his response to you is based on his evaluation of your competence and performance it's not but then that anger goes from It irks to anger, and the anger morphs into full blown cynicism when you handle ungiven prayer by saying, Look, I told him once, and that should be enough. I mean, of course. This is God as a machine, an impersonal blessing delivery machine. But we saw that the promises are profoundly relational, that God wants us, as his children, to come to him again and again. And again because that's how relationships work. Um, the I asked you once is just foolish. Uh, don't ever try that kind of thing in a close relationship, say a marriage, you go to your wife or husband and say look back in 1998 I told you that I loved you, isn't that enough? I'll let you know if I change my mind. No. Friends, spouses, they're not machines that you say thing once and it's just sort of locked in in the code. That's just not how relationships work. They're not computers. They're persons. And so we keep drawing near to them. These sisters and brothers, so many of the problems in our life in Christ come from the fact that we haven't found the way to live out the reality that God is our Father and that we come to him as his children. Instead we see him as our genie or as our boss or as our machine and we move from disappointment to disappointment. That scar tissue builds up in our souls. We lose our trust and we gradually move more and more into cynicism. And Jesus says he's your father. He's your father. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. You're his child. You come to your father with deep, persistent, sleeve-tugging trust. Kids expect to be loved. It's it's one of the the kind of saving graces of being a parent, actually, you you mess it up. And they just, they, they keep expecting to be loved. They expect to be heard and received. They know that they're not going to be kicked out because they had a tantrum an hour or two ago. Actually, you wish they were a little more contrite sometimes. They just keep coming back. And we unlearn these things as we grow into adulthood. And to be a Christian is to actually get some of those responses back toward our Heavenly Father. Because when you know your Father like this, it means that you bathe in the comfort and rest and joy of his powerful and loving hands. It means that you know what it is to live loved. You live loved with a father who answers your prayers. Uh, I've been a child of the father for about 35 years now. I find myself still a beginner in prayer. I think growing up into eternity, that's just kind of a different time scale, right? It takes a little longer. Uh, I've fallen into virtual prayerlessness on numerous occasions and that has actually been God's way of teaching me some things. And so I want to suggest... Uh, just a few things a few kind of concrete steps to grow as a praying child. Three things firstly have a plan and get some help. It's true in prayer as much as in anything else if you fail to plan then you might as well plan to fail. Uh, I need a plan for my prayers where and when and what and I have a a thing that helps me do that it's an app uh, called prayer mate which we've mentioned here from time to time it's just it's pretty easy to use you create lists of things or organizations or people mostly actually and in different categories and you tell it how many people you want to pray for each day and it just manages those lists for you you can write down i write down things that i've prayed for people in the sort of notes section and you can read back over it it's sort of a a history it's a biography of god in the life of this person the way he's answered those prayers And the plain fact is that when I have a plan to pray, guess what? I pray more. When I don't have a plan to pray, guess what? I don't pray nearly as much. First, have a plan. Second, pray at the start and end of each day. I noticed this a while ago, but the Psalms often talk about praying morning and night. And I don't think that's accidental. There's a rhythm to life. It's punctuated by sleep. That's how the day ends. It's how the next day begins. And to pray at the start and end of each day makes profound sense. So I'm going to give you the most brilliant piece of insight you've ever had here. The only way to pray in the morning is to go to bed at a decent hour each night, set an alarm, and then get up when it goes off. Okay, I could write a book about that and make a great deal of money because it's so bleeding obvious, isn't it? If you have a plan and you set an alarm and you go to bed at a decent hour and get up when it goes off, then you'll make the space to pray. Uh, at the moment, I'm walking from um, our apartment in Summer Hill to the office. It's uh, 2.75 kilometers, which my watch tells me every time I do it. Uh, it takes precisely 30 minutes to do, um, and it's become a really great opportunity for my prayer time. I take out my, wa- uh, my, my phone. I avoid potholes as I watch my phone. It tells me what to pray for and I make it to work. work. Beginning, end. Likewise, uh, Katrina and I, my wife and I, have developed a practice at the end of each day. Uh, uh, Before you go to sleep, it's just pretty simple. I say, because I know if I don't say, she'll know that I didn't say it, and she'll get cranky at me, so it works, right? I say, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? It's four words. She says a prayer, I say a prayer, and that's it. It's not dramatic. It's just children coming to their father. And I think there's something very spiritually healthy in beginning and ending each day in prayer. And so it's worth, as you think about your plan, what's your plan to pray at the start of each day? What's your plan to pray at the end of each day? You might have a housemate that you can pray with. Don't not make a plan And get help from someone out of some sort of awkwardness or shyness or embarrassment. There's only one thing that wants to stop you from praying. You know who that is? That's the evil one. Don't be shy about it. Have a plan, beginning and end. Thirdly, turn the events of the day into what one friend calls prayer arrows turn the events of the day into what you might call prayer arrows. There's so much happening at the moment, isn't there? Um, We we live in a massively over-informed world. Massively over-informed world. The capacity for us to handle the amount of information that's coming at us constantly, and I don't know whether you felt this uh, this last week, the sheer, just, it's like a volume. It's like a tonnage of information about the fires particularly, and, but not just the fires. I mean, we've got our problems here, absolutely. And now we've got, what, war about to break out in the Middle East, Iran, and who knows? Massive amounts of information. And, and that's apart from I've got friends who's quite dangerous situation overseas. We've got the Haberfield plant. On Friday when I wrote this, there was Alison Glover uh, in, in hospital three weeks early. And, and during the day, all of these things drift across my furry little brain and I think about them and one of the things that I'm learning more and more to do is to not just think about them but to pray about them turn them into, and I want to suggest to you that the only way that you will avoid either checking out and going numb or just being enraged with the rest of the culture because they're the two options that the culture's got right that's what your friends on Facebook they've got numb and I just don't care anymore or they've got rage Both of them are hopeless responses. Destructive responses, actually. The only way you'll find some other path is to take the stuff that, and so when there's more stuff coming at you, you just need more practice at doing this, right? To take the events that cross your mind and not just think about them, but to pray about them. There is a difference. It is important for you to know between thinking and praying. Thinking is mainly you talking to yourself. Praying is you talking to God. They're two very different things because you're two very different people. Don't get those two things confused. Have a plan morning and night and turn the events of the day into prayer because our God is a God of promises. And one of the great promises that he makes is that he will hear and he will answer our prayers. He is our good heavenly father. Let's take him at his word. Amen.